Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I am Preston. And today we are reading Preston's Choice. What are we reading today, dude? Today we are reading the preface to a book. Not the book, just just a preface. But uh, this preface for the second edition of Nietzsche's The Gay Science has got to be one of my, like, favorite, what, five maybe five Seven. pages like super short it is it's one of the more fun reads i think i've had that you've uh, given me so this is uh when uh, it came my turn i thought this would be a fun quick one for us yeah i um if i ever was a, a teacher where like philosophy would come up more in the classroom um if i was ever going to do a nietzsche class i'd lead with something like this because it I think is an armor against a sort of phenomena that happens usually when usually young men first read Nietzsche in undergrad or late high school which is kind of a weird attitude it's like uh everything sucks and I know I know the answers of like yep I figured it out everyone sucks but me and I am uberman yeah like they they identify (laughs) they do a terrible with French they'll you know they they misidentify with his fables in a way that can be socially destructive to the new philosopher, (laughs) to the burgeoning student in any field, knowing the answer on day one is usually considered a dick move. (laughs) 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 Yeah. And I think that, I think this text just blows that whole notion out of the water uh, for several reasons. Right. I, that this should be the preface to, anything that he writes because i uh i don't know i feel like it completely alters the way you would read a lot of things and i mean even here in like our first little uh little footnote that it throws in there it mentions is that zarathustra is something of a parody a little bit it's a hard it's a hard read zarathustra i struggled through that text because um i found it very long and I normally don't find Nietzsche long-winded. Um, and I found it um, personally a little insufferable. Great moments, of course. But, you know, maybe so if it, I take another read. It's got some good one-liners. Yeah, with the, with the thinking of it as a parody, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do better than That's thinking of it point. as a novel. Um, so, basically, the gist of this is Nietzsche, he always has his, you know, I'm going under and I'm going over. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger type mentality. And... Here he's happy. He's just gone through a very dark period and he's emerged from the other side. And the first thing he says is sort of an apology for what you're about to read. <laughs> right? Yeah. Because I'm going to do songs. And man, he does way too many songs. <laughs> the, the ending, of, it, it's such a weird read because if you, you know, the gay science part four is, and, and a lot of part five is, uh, is sublime and, and is lovely and then you get to these songs and they're just awful just i mean just terrible i mean and I, i'm willing to be convinced you know if anyone wants to find us and reach out and tell me i'm wrong and tell me which song i should be reading or singing i'm i'm not averse to singing i have a music i have many music degrees so i mean you got to appreciate that he was in a good enough mood to be like you know what I'm gonna try my hand at songwriting. Oh well, the more you read of Nietzsche, the more the more you're gonna be excited not to read them. There's, <laughs> he has songs everywhere. There's songs all over the place, and I've never read a Nietzsche song or poem that struck me as 
anything readable in the sense of it's very cringy to me but but it's wild because he's not cringy it's just the song so what is the for you quote from this one an opening one that you just really loved or somewhere in the essay oh let's see i mean there's a lot yeah of really pretty good jam-packed. ones but one that that hit a little close to home for me was um, when he talks about, you know, the relationship between illness and, you know, philosophy. And um, I really like when he mentions, you know, whether or not it was sickness that inspired the philosopher. He kind of talks a little bit about how, you know, in this, like, mindset of, like, Taking, you know, illness, yeah. you know, whether that, I mean, for me, I felt like that really hit close to home on, like, actual mental illness stuff. Uh, I think it Whereas would be I him. think He's definitely talking depression and anxiety. And, uh, I think that, um, the one thing that I have found, because, I mean, the, some of the more rougher patches of those, those two close friends of mine, depression and anxiety there, uh, <laughs> are certainly major contributing factors into why I started reading this stuff in the first place. Yeah. And, um... And you gotta find a... And he's he's encouraging us to find a beyond of that. Right? Ah. I like to say, like, to say you, you don't then... To move to the next phase existentially, you don't stay in that mindset where at any moment things could fall apart, but luckily I have my daemon philosophy, ah. which will save me from that final fall. And I think that there's a thought going on in this text, which is like, you fall, and if you fall and you always have that crux of philosophy, then I think there's the idea that you're, you could run the risk of just staying at that place where mm. philosophy is continually saving you from that final plunge. I, um, I also really like the, uh, when he talks about um, how rather than, you know, it's very, like when he talks about how, you know, the way he kind of flips between like the illness and philosophy and stuff, I think is really fascinating when he brings up the whole idea of like, rather than trying to eliminate the sickness, you begin to examine it and kind of appreciate what's going on. And rather than looking at it as this thing you need to eliminate so you can get back to status quo it becomes more of a progress point that when you're looking at it from different places you get to know yourself a little bit better yeah and one obstacle to that that he thinks philosophy has been guilty of from platonism and also the christian religion is the basic concept of some transcendent other reality that is there to save you at your lowest and Nietzsche is radically trying to be I mean even bigger than here. that like the idea that there is an overarching truth that once you figure it out all things will fall into place like ah I have found the truth yeah and the danger is not that they won't the danger is that they obviously will Ah. You, know, you know, it's like uh, that they, they, you will find 
I always think of beliefs as not, and belief structures as not inert systems existing in the world, but as structures or to anthropomorphize just a little, things that are looking for you as you think you are just looking for something neutral. You know, something like a pair of clothes that you would like. You go, I really like those clothes, but not considering what led the clothes to fall on you, so to speak. (laughs) But I I really like how he dives into, uh, I mean, this line, you know, what was at stake in all four... Philosophizing hitherto was not at all truth, but something else. Let us say health, future, growth, power, life. Vitality, basically. Yeah. I, yeah. I, this is vitalism side, right? Where... So, I, I like the idea of, like, you know, the goal of, like, philosophy isn't, like, to find the truth. And, you know, then we'll have it all figured out. Problem solved. We found that one problem that that we had. And, I don't know, it's more about, like, the exploration through being alive. I don't know, just... Well, at least it's not something transcendently other. Meaning, like, like, like and I don't mean other, like, other, other people. Like, it's not transcendent in the sense that it's not going to be found in another world that you're eventually going to get to or that you're waiting for or a system that'll fall into place to hold everything together Mm. something hierarchical um i also think there's a lot of themes in this that a lot of later philosophers pick up on you know and we'll get to some of them i'm sure but like on page one um without submitting but also without hope and who is now all at once attacked by hope the hope for health and the intoxication of convalescence mm. there's a sense in there there's a book by Zizek called the courage of hopelessness hopelessness where like you can only truly begin if you can kind of accept the situation as it is and in the view that Nietzsche presents here hope is sort of a deferral on the on the situation whatever that is could be hmm. yeah I, I like that one too um but another thing that he he talks about a little bit here is you know the two different approaches to oh, yeah. philosophy here and uh, um, so for assuming that one is a person you know thank you Nietzsche. assuming that you're <laughs> assuming. not a dog attempting to read <laughs> these things yeah you're not Chat GPT <laughs> wearing the human speech clothes of Barack Obama's voice. <laughs> Um, one necessarily also has the philosophy that belongs to that person. Um, but there is a big difference. In some, it is their deprivations that philosophize. In others, their riches and strengths. The former need their philosophy, whether it be as a prop, a sedative, medicine, redemption, elation, or self-alienation. For the latter, it is merely a beautiful luxury yeah yeah uh, that kind of goes with like a theme of gratitude he always is talking about right where it's like instead of thinking about philosophy as a thing that you go to to punch to get the coins <laughs> like in a video game you know <laughs> like, like I gotta go to the well and punch the water for me to drink it it's more like something that you're grateful for on a, on a base level as a starting point 
Um, I also think he would say that a lot of, from his position, a lot of former philosophies and to him fall under not critical philosophy. So like, usually we think of like the word philosophy, I would say has two flipping points. The common usage, which I think he's playing with here, although it's in, in German translated, is the notion of a way of being. Mm. Like a, a light, a, a worldview, a Weltanschauung, maybe. Like, a, like a, a being a Christian, being a Muslim, or maybe being an atheist can fit that. Whereas the critical philosophy is usually challenging the beliefs of others. It's not mm. going to be like, I'm coming to you with the good news. It's how do you know that news is so good? You know, and it's a position what, you can take. What if they're lying to you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Nietzsche would be pretty concerned with the current American position on what if they're lying to you, right? <laughs> um, also, I like this one a lot. Yeah. Um, in the little third section here, uh, we have to give birth to our thoughts out of pain. And then he also follows this up with, I doubt that such pain makes us better, but I know that it makes us more profound. Maybe. I'm not sure if I like that part as much. I I, mean, I, I, I think that this, I forget the... the... Once again, yeah. translation. What does he mean by pain? Yeah, like, is this a physical pain? Is this the going through of depression on the other side you come out somehow more profound because i think that that might be a stereotype definitely it might be just yeah it might that, be just yeah, oh. pain <laughs> you know <laughs> it might not end at any greater meaning or i mean i i think he could also be diving into more of like struggle like more of that yeah struggle to come to terms with things like actually questioning stuff can be painful if you will yeah. and while it may not make you better at least you learn shit well yeah like i mean a later model that's not nietzschean of course but it's it's still somewhat like it's still psychology psychological is um you know you go to an analyst and you get psychoanalyzed and you know more about yourself at the end of the treatment but different thoughts would based on who you are either make you better possibly or it might be new traumas that you then have to again go back and it might be turtles all the way down oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's a certain like this the the nietzschean risk is like i would say implicating the person behind any text of a philosophical document saying like this person He's immediately attacking the ideas, but he's also, even though he always says, I'm just attacking ideas, he is implicating the people behind those ideas quite mm. a bit, I would say. Um, whether or not he would agree, I'm not sure. But, yeah. Um, I kind of, I don't know, I feel, I, I can't tell if I don't like that quote because it reminds me of the, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah, which I thing. don't, I definitely... Except for the stuff that leave you with, like, no arms or, yeah. you know, like... Or, or you know, crippling, or... crippling psychological trauma for the rest of your life. I'm not really sure if the Iraq War 
if a good narrative to give someone with PTSD from the Iraq war is to say, look, on the other side of this, you're going to feel stronger. I'm not, I think that's a bad idea. (laughs) You know, at least you didn't die like your buddies and you're going to be stronger because of it. Yeah, like that's a little. uh, You would probably be doing the opposite. You would be invigorating the negativity. Yeah, so like I. But I don't know. I'm maybe he's hedging with the whole. That doesn't make us better, but you learn something. Yeah, and better. That quotation marks. (laughs) 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 He doesn't want to talk about that more. Um, Uh, after that though I do like when he dives into this thought of as you um, you know get more into this like mindset of I don't know I like uh, is it Rorty Richard Rorty when he talks like the the ironic philosopher I I feel like this kind of fits in it with a little bit oh Nietzsche is like I would say doesn't he? I bet he mentions Nietzsche. I'm assuming I, I as like a categorical, so. ironic philosopher. Um, but I like how he he adds this framework that I, when I read this part, I was like, "Oh God, that is so Chris." Uh, the trust in life is gone. Life itself has become a problem. And then he kind of talks about how when you learn to like appreciate life as just this constant problem that it just is you kind of learn to laugh at it a bit more yeah you can get to more an absurd point of view yes or more yes you can appreciate the silly and absurd shit which i would things. say when a young per when a young per- i mean of course i mean i am that young person in a sense like i read nietzsche first as a 17 year old kid and i'm sure i went through all the things that i just complained about other people going through (laughs) but like when when you make that shift i would say that the feeling he's harnessing is the feeling of weight being lifted off of a person like like think of how many times when people there's the organization freedom from religion and the positioning and naming of that organization is in accord with what he's saying which is that you know, all these beliefs and all these structures handed to you that you then adopt, they can be, t- you can lift those off and it can be like a boulder lifting off of your back. And I think that happens for a lot. I'm assuming there was a moment for you leaving religion oh. where you had that maybe weightlessness at some point. So, or... I mean, stages, really. Yeah. When I think about it like retroactively, and I think I've mentioned this before, but like there are, there were steps. I mean, yeah. like, the first big, like, God, it sucked. Horrible conversation. Like, core memory, horrible evening. I'll never forget it. But it also, like, leaving it, you know, the night I told my parents, I was like, just so you guys know, um, I don't believe in any of this. Oh, wow, I yeah. don't want to do this anymore. Horrible night. Yeah. Horrid. But walking down the stairs after that conversation was like a long just exhale of like years yeah of pent up waiting and dragging that around for so long because it's not like i've been asked before with people that are like you know so what was the breaking point and i just for me i don't think it was i I think there were some final straws for sure but it was a like 
slow process of small cracks that slowly grew and I just couldn't hold the pieces together anymore and as soon as I as soon as I started letting you know one one part of the pot fall yeah. water starts rushing I realize there's no structure to this thing and I don't buy any of it and yeah. uh it's like a little and then a sudden lot yeah <laughs> like a little bit and then like a wait a minute but even after that there is still you know, I think that this is why, you know, a lot of people that are in, like, really aggressive cults, which, you know, there's not a big difference between that and religion. It's just time and money. <laughs> time but, and money. There you go. But, like, deprogramming, like, deep brainwashing is, you know... Yeah. It is, it is a necessary thing, because even after, like, I had made the call that I'm not going to believe it anymore there's still this little voice in the back of the head that's like, but maybe someday I might go back just so I can be safe and God won't strike me down. It's like I can live my life and then when I'm 80 before I die, I can, yep. like, I can like jump back in and, you know, yep. have and lived my free space exactly. life. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, on that... Like, on the, that, like yeah. the Jillian Welch song, the um, Miss Ohio, you know. Oh, yeah. I want to do right. But not right now. But not right now. But not right exactly. Now. Uh, and, and Nietzsche would, of course, say, well, just, you know, at some point, hopefully, that whole binary will, will uh, evaporate, right? Yes. So that is um, the weightlessness for me Yeah. compared to the first time of, like, all right, I took the first step in moving away from it compared to when, like, I realized, I was like, oh, that's that's not a voice in the back of my head anymore. It's not a weight. Yeah. It was not like a day I realized. It was like more of a, oh, that doesn't bother me yeah. anymore. That's, it's not, that's the it's real not even like a, uh, a stimulus. Yeah. It's yeah. not a compulsory reaction to yeah. any thoughts anymore. Like the, a lot of that stuff from back then is not even something that pops up. Well, that's where, and it's kind of interesting, so, on a related thought, he lists a lot of things that are, you know, bad before he gets to his own view, you know, um, religious craving for some apart, beyond, outside, above, permits the question whether it was not sickness that inspired the philosopher, so I have a weird turn on that. He's, he doesn't, he misses one. And I, and I think it's kind of an interesting one to miss because he has to miss it for his metaphors to make sense. He says a part above, but he doesn't say below because below is where we're at, you know, in the Nietzsche, in the real world, right? We're in the, you know, this is reality. But what's the, what's one of the most common things that deprogrammed people have the most trouble letting go of is hell. Yeah. Oh my God. And it's like right? one of the first questions. Yeah. Anytime you meet a stranger outside of Utah, oh, that's where, uh, that's where all the Mormons are, right? Yeah. So, uh, are you Mormon? No, not anymore. Oh, you were the yeah. So the Mormons like believe in hell. Well, kinda and sort of, but it'd be more outer for you guys, right? Here's be, it's like because it's outer, outer the darkness. Thing, though is the approach is different, but the concept is the exact fucking same. Yeah. So instead of you know threatening you with fire and brimstone, it's like oh you just get 
cut off. <laughs> You're just alone for eternity. Which works in a model where your commun where there the terrestrial analogy of that would be becoming ostracized from the community in this world. It doesn't really work in holding on to members when they can just go hang out with non-religious people. <laughs> like it doesn't work as a metaphor because because that outer darkness is just it only works when there's an analogous in the real world, I think. You know. Well, here's the thing. So outer darkness is reserved not for like non-believers. Like this this is kind of where you know Mormonism may or what the Church of Jesus Christ of the, the, the sorry these people of the Church of Jesus Christ of this modern day dispensation whatever the fucking new name is yeah uh is it's not that like you know the only people who go to outer darkness like Hitler is doesn't even get to go to outer darkness oh okay so like you have these kingdoms of heaven so you got your three kingdoms of heaven highest one are for your baptized in the church. Yeah. Good people. And then there's three kingdoms within that. Not diving into a lot of stuff. Then you've got like your middle kingdom, which is for. Um, oh, my day has been so long. Good That's okay. people so who like yeah. didn't know religion. And you got like the bottom kingdom, which is. Lay people. The low, lowest kingdom is earth in its prime in this belief system. So even the worst people in the world will go here. The only people that go to outer darkness are the people who have had a direct witness yeah. to God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, and then denied it to people. So it's like you saw God and then told people he doesn't exist. So you have to be like the worst kind of apostate. Anybody else, there's a route back, essentially. So like the worst kind of apostate who has that vision... That still doesn't exist on the flip side because you would just say that you had like a regular brain mishap, <laughs> you know, like the things that happen all the time, like mass psychosis or hysteria or like a a trip on drugs or sleep paralysis or you know, like you'd you'd have something that in previous times might have been coded as a religious experience, but now you'd be like, oh well, I just like if I had a thing where I saw the transcendent beyond, I wouldn't be like in. I mean, I guess in Mormonism, things but, I'd be in the lowest level, but... But you'd but, know. The oh, difference is you'd okay. know. So it's really reserved for people who don't really exist. Well, like, not many people think I mean, that. technically, one of the first eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon, he's got himself a slot in there. That just sounds like a grudge. We're putting that guy in there. Oh, <laughs> yeah, hold that on, no! God said this. All right. Fair Not enough. Joseph Smith. God said this. All right. Well, okay. But yeah. Anyways, gonna, it's yeah. it's the same. Like they try and paint it as if like, oh no, we're not like those other Christian religions. You don't go to fire and brimstone. You're just alone forever. It's, so it's equally like kind of a, horrifying. Kind of like a fire and ice type. That's situation. equally <laughs> fucking horrifying. But but you, but it's missing in the Nietzsche here, right? He doesn't say below. Yeah, correct. Yeah, say, getting back. But well, here's here. my thought on that. So, so my thought was that he didn't say below. Not I don't I don't know why he didn't say below, other than possibly that it didn't fit with the metaphorical structure, as I said. But 
I would say that below doesn't fit because of something more interesting, which is that the promises are always on the side of the of the good, like the symptomatic promises. Like if you do this, all these things will happen, and then you're going to be edified. In you know in Nietzsche's words, um, inspired by sickness, right? But one would wonder if on the way out of the religion, that's where the hell becomes the beyond that then is almost the sign of health, right? Because if the beyond is, is a bad thing instead of a good thing, it seems like you've already made a sort of process step forward. Yeah. And then the final one, of course, would be just negating the binary and being like, neither, neither, neither here nor there. <laughs> but right. I do wonder if, if being afraid of hell is actually a mark of a, of a personal triumph. Hmm. Not being afraid of hell while you're in the religion. Like, there's so many, um, you know, Protestant Ooh. religions that emphasize hell to a degree that's that's very abusive. But when you leave, and hell is the thing that's left over, I think that's sort of a first positive step, right? Because you're not worried about the promises. You're worried about the punishment of if you don't, meaning that you've already sort of positioned yourself outside. Ooh, that's, I actually kind of like that. Because I think a big complaint I have with a lot of religions in them being like, oh, but without religion, you know, that's our structure for morals. We were just a bunch of brainless heathens before we had it. Whether or not God existed, it moved us forward. Right. And I was like, I don't know how I feel about the fact that people are only being moral because they're getting money at the end. Right. Well, that kind of goes to his... Instead of saying criminals, he's saying sick. And uh, I guess for him it might be the same thing, right? Like the idea... Also, Nietzsche's being personal here. So anytime he talks about the beyond, I, I get that he's also critiquing himself when any of those thoughts come into him. If I have this structure, if I have this... If I have this... Um, and I, again, not all structure is a beyond structure. It's not all hierarchical to the beyond but like for Nietzsche it seems like what what really is important to him is self-critique mm. and that's why he's not saying criminals is because I don't think he sees himself as a criminal maybe he does it'd be kind of fun it's never done anything illegal but he's like I do thought crimes I do thought crimes I'm Nietzsche thought criminal I mean there's a little like okay I love this text and it, it's it's great. Um, and there's some moments that are pretty cringy still where you read it and you go, oh, that's really dumb. <laughs> but like, uh, like one of the ones that I just really didn't like was the self-reflexive chapter part two. But let us leave Herr Nietzsche. What is it to us that Herr Nietzsche has become well again? And you're like, <laughs> I hated okay. That so I much. mean, you didn't leave him at so all. Dumb. Yeah, I was like, you didn't leave him at all. <laughs> He's not absent at any moment after or before. <laughs> like, it's not like a global change in the text happens. So when I first yeah. read this, I texted you and I was like, it is the preface written by him or someone else? Ah, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. <laughs> so I was like, wait, I thought this was him. That was kind of dumb. Yeah, and then the other one, I'm really torn on, and maybe you can convince me either way. I think it has its merits, and I also think it... I, I might roll my eyes just a little. He gets to the end, and he's quoting a little girl asking his mother, asking her mother, Is it true that God is present everywhere? A little girl asked her mother. I think that's indecent. Dash. 
a hint for philosophers. <laughs> and you're like, okay. <laughs> and I, I like it in the sense that he's just playing around. And I think that's fine. I wonder, though... Okay, so with Nietzsche, there's always the full weight of all of the canon behind him when he's saying. So, like, when he says, is it true that God is present everywhere? There's always, I think, two levels in Nietzsche. So, like, we're going to critique Christianity, the local level, and Platonism, the distant other level. Here... It's that level of like, the 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 more low level would be like. God is in the trees and the flowers and everything you love, and you know ignoring the genocide and the and the murder. So, <laughs> so God was just you know, one of hanging us. out smoking a cigarette at Auschwitz, just like, oh, I'm everywhere, man. Well, this is, what are you gonna a, do? There's a joke that like, I forget the joke, but it's it's. We'll look it up afterward, but it basically is like, you know, that's the place where even God finally in the 2,000 years turned turned away. Oh. You know, but I, I think that the deeper level that he's trying to talk about here, and it's very subtle. I'm not sure if it's actually in the text, but when I hear, is it true that God is present everywhere? I think to the philosopher Spinoza, who we haven't read yet for this, and we may not get to him. He's not super contemporary, but he is often thought of as either an atheist or a pantheist. And he begins his book, The Ethics, with on God or nature. Yeah. And there's a reading of the text that I guess you could take, which is like that God is sort of this vitalist presence in everything that is just synonymous with nature itself and, and all of its numerous multifaceted workings. And I'm wondering if he's sort of laughing at that um, huh. notion. Although he shouldn't, because Nietzsche and Spinoza have a lot in common, because Spinoza also was a sort of apostate. Well, Nietzsche wasn't apostate, but Spinoza was, I think, excommunicated from the Jewish faith. Oh. So, you know, he's still on the other side of apostasy. And, but I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think about that paragraph? So, I had not really thought much about, like, the canon, obviously being far less read in this stuff. My more immediate one is him tying into this idea that rather than, you know, figuring out this focus on figuring everything out, learning everything, finding the, the truth in the bottom of all things... You know? Yeah. Sometimes it's okay to just kind of hang in the, I don't fucking know. And I'm okay with just enjoying it because I don't know. Enjoying the not, um, I mean, he uses the word rape. We'd probably use the word more, um, I still like punching a, a bag trying to get coins out of it. <laughs> it feels like it maybe the works, works better. But sort of like attacking the world around you. Um, although he might like the word attacking because then we reach back to the conflict that he likes instead of the instead of a sort of fundamental harmony that we're reaching after. So I would think, like, tying into kind of the, um, the first thought we had about the, ugh, everything sucks, I'm negative, and I'm amazing. But, like, yeah. using more the critique of the world around us and all this stuff in a more, like, enjoyable, playful manner... Like, less of it being like, 
uh, blah, blah, blah is blah, blah, blah. And that's why everything fucking sucks, man. Yeah. It's more like, damn, dude, it's kind of crazy that, you know, leader of the Werner group dies in an accidental plane crash. Wagner. Instead of being, the yeah, Wagner, yeah. Wagner this isn't the end of the world. It's, oh my God, the death spots and everything. I liked your comments. You're like, fucking Game of Thrones, dude. Well, it was Game of Thrones, <laughs> but it, in, a, in an ultimate ironic turn, it would be perfectly beautiful if that was actually just an accidental plane crash. Oh, <laughs> like, shit, could so you imagine? It would be amazing, because no one would believe it. You know, no, just, one, no one could, I, I, even me would have my paranoid background in my brain going, oh yeah, that's what, yeah, that's what they D- say. He's on right? the other side of the veil going, no, we were totally cool, me and Putin became buddies again, man. I wonder if that actually is really interesting, like, like think about him, so the moment he decides on his mutiny against Putin, you and I both were like, he's a, you know, he's a dead man. And everyone either, I either they to win like, he's or he's going to die. Yeah, he's going to yeah, die. Either, all of his enemies Either this die. is just some crazy overthrow of Russia, yeah. which for a minute there I was like, oh shit. But then he's like, nah, we're cool. Yeah, he, I'm going to go hang out over here. Yeah, he gave and, up. He, he gave up and he, and he, and he should have not started. He should have given up a lot earlier when he was a chef. But like, <laughs> the the funny thing, the the like weird like personal trope is that, you know, Putin's always associated with people falling out of things like buildings and getting poisoned and you know oh the person fell from a window and I would love it if behind closed doors this whole time since he committed the mutiny Putin was just trying for an opportunity to get him to fall out of something higher <laughs> like, like, like a window isn't high enough for this enemy we like, need to make a point look Putin if we want to get rid of him yeah. let's just poison him man it's worked before no Higher. Higher. And that's why it's uh, taking so do long? We, do we throw him out of a... Higher. Yeah. Higher. A plane. The only thing. Uh, just, and then they just waited for Put him in rocket ship. Uh, yeah. Our program isn't going so hot right now, Putin. You know, the whole war here. Yeah, exactly. N- rocket ship. Look, we can do a plane. A plane? Plane high enough. Well, I think that... Okay, so getting back to Nietzsche's value critique and the young, the young, yes, by the way, fucking A, love, I love the Prigozhin death story, it's, it's, it's great. It also is just, the interesting point I was thinking of is that, like, I think Prigozhin, in the sense of the word, was one of the more true dead man walking to fit the concept, because no matter how he died, I don't think the world, and maybe me included, would ever believe he wasn't murdered by you know, he oh. was like a true dead man walking, right? Like, however he died, even if it was he had a heart attack. Putin! Like, Putin. Like, there'd be no avenue unless, like, and if he filmed, a, like, imagine if he filmed a theatrical video. He was attacked by sharks in Egypt. Mm. I hear that Russia's been working with mind-controlled sharks. That yeah. must have been it. I mean, maybe if it was a sea bass. <laughs> but, okay, wait. So, back to the kid, though. The kid who's sort of, like, doing all this um, positioning... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say man, because it's usually, it's usually a young man. I mean, you know, it's not always, but usually a young man who positions himself as sort of external to the values and beliefs of others hmm. is actually not doing what Nietzsche is prescribing or, or, or at least giving it a path towards because what the kid is doing is saying no to life, right? In the, in the Nietzschean sense where there's this saying no to life and saying yes to life. 
which is mm. becomes obscene and simplistic in the movie Say Yes, where the guy has to say yes to everything. Oh, a horrible yes, movie. man. Yes, man, a horrible movie. But, you know, plays out that philosophy more literally than I'm assuming Nietzsche meant Listen, it. Listen, Jim Carrey's never done a bad film, and that's a fact. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, disagree to disagree. <laughs> Except, like, the number 23. That was pretty bad. And, yes, man. Uh, but, yeah, and yes, man does that, right? Like Kind of like, like everything post but I'm assuming, I didn't make it through that film, I'm assuming by the end he actually learns the value of saying yes to life in the Nietzschean sense, and that it doesn't literally mean saying he yes He rides to... a scooter, drinks some Red Bull, and yeah. just gets a better appreciation for life. Yeah, there you go, right? I do wonder, so when it, when it, Nietzsche, I think, is a, is, is part and parcel with, with his value critique. He is also trying to give people baggage against ideologies mm. you know and the problem is with the kid who is externally externalizing themselves is that they haven't really looked at why they then came to accept whatever Nietzsche was saying as the then belief oh. that, you know what I mean like he's, he's okay. like it, it wasn't Nietzsche yeah. for me it was Rand oh, it was okay. Rand yeah. so this is like you're nailing on something I think a lot of people like post-religion like 18 to 20 area kind of go yeah. through is that like god hole vacuum if like i love the way you put it in that you he's creating a defense against ideology because i like after leaving the church and you know you yeah. abandon all that nothing i just the first thing that started to click for me yeah sucked right into it and i was like ah yes this makes sense it makes me feel good i'm gonna dive more into it and you know i mean i feel like Anne rand is like the boiled down version of a misreading of, <laughs> of, of history of philosophy oh yeah uh, of, oh my gosh. of nietzsche as well of oh just yeah this, like totally. you know the uberman against the world yeah. you know i am a great person so I can be loose with... It's another thing that I always am like, you're so huge on, like, these morals without religion and everything in yeah. there. Yet you also have this weird theme in which all your main characters, because they're so great and they do all these great things, they're allowed to be a little bit immoral. But it's okay because in, in their in structure the of things, of things it yeah. fits. Like, obsession with... Main character smokes cigarettes like fucking crazy, which is kind of what like killed her in the end. Cigarettes is kind of funny. I'm not but sure they if smoking all, is a moral category. Almost every main character has some weird shit with like adultery, and yeah. there's all like the these weird justifications. But because their mind is so great and all this shit, and it's like it's it's acceptable for you to do things that aren't, you know what we would consider like publicly morally acceptable you can you but can because do you're just such a greater person you get the right to that because you're an uber man and it's just a are you just sort of at that, that point toxic shit kind of performing for yourself though like you're kind of like if you're great like, like, like i'm just gonna be like right now i believe that i am great the only person who's the recipient of that greatness is the rest of my brain. Well, it's a right? good thing like, Anne Rand trains you to think you're the only person whose opinion should matter to you. I think that conflicts most fundamentally with my belief in the sense, 
in a very specific sense that, like, in Lacanian theory, the other is never really so easily distinguished from your own mental apparatus. It's not like you can go out and say, I had this thought, this person had that thought, that came from over there. Because if you do that, you'll eventually reach a point where everything you thought before a certain age was just what other people thought. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, it's not, it's not like there's many four-year-olds walking around being like, I've got it! Dark matter is the blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and, like, I, I think that, like, I mean, I'm obviously painting with a broad brush here, but I think that what Nietzsche, what Nietzsche doesn't just want to val armor, armor you against external thoughts and external structures. He, his positing is is creativity, right? Like, he, he, like you have to create your own values. Mm. You know, whatever those are, you know, and he has his, his here, frivolity and and sort of um i mean i mean I, I hate the phrase living in the now but i guess living in the now is the only one i'm going to use i don't I know mean, <laughs> developing a moral code based on your own experiences instead of people telling you what is right and wrong yeah i, I kind of like well also i don't think it can be that easily blanketed no, and Ted I, Bundy lived by his own morals and codes. And he well, I think stayed. that's where Nietzsche isn't a Lacanian. I think, like, you know, many times in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, it's very clear that the ethical imperative of the analyst is not to make the analysand a better person. Mm. You're, not, you're not, I mean, not many people who are Ted Bundy, I'm assuming, are in psychoanalysis. And if they are, we got to read those transcripts. Or maybe um, there's too many. Maybe there's too many. <laughs> Wouldn't it be wild? In alternative history, that's the thread. Like, you dig too deep and then you just murder everyone. You, you just, I found the you, truth! <laughs> yeah! yeah! <laughs> and it's like a Lovecraftian truth where you see the 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 ship of the yeah. event horizon. You see the up, eyes, yeah. and to look into his eyes is madness. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, obviously, I don't think we are sitting here going like, yeah, that's what Nietzsche's saying. I think that what Nietzsche is, first of all, he's presuming a lot from the reader. And I, I think this is actually a deeper reason why the young person would follow him more closely is because there is a distance in analytic texts. You know, you read a text and it goes, I argue previously in the literature, yada, yada, yada. However, this misses this and this and this. Therefore, I argue this through this evidence, through this evidence. Maybe I'll make a joke. Moving on to the next point. In summary, blah, 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 blah. Confounding variables, whatever, you know, whatever you're putting in your academic essay. And you're doing a lot of that in, in college because you get, duh, I mean, you should be. But you're not getting to know a subject. You're not reading an a, an, a paper with the distinct goal of achieving a relationship or knowledge of some other subject. Whereas I think a precondition to being in the reading position of Nietzsche is an empathy with his subjectivity. I, I don't think you can read Nietzsche mm -hmm. in the sense of like, this is this argument divorced from his subjectivity. And I think, I think many people have, and I think that's valuable to do, but I don't think at that point you're then really engrossed in the text. And I, and I think that like, I think that there's a little bit of a replacement of sky daddy with, other male figure mm. with the young person maybe i mean that's a little sad maybe that's not right i don't know how do you feel i 
I don't or know. Or a womanly figure. I mean, Anne Rand functions as a sky daddy, too. <laughs> I... But I also feel like that's the uh, the excuse. Like, see, we do like women. Right. We, we read Anne Rand. But, you know... It's the proud boys, not the proud boys and girls. And, like, I've never... So, like, one of the things that's just personally interesting for me is that I've always found the identification based on gender a very, not traumatic experience, but a very interesting experience for me because I would say that my identification structure falls on the feminine... Ooh, excuse me. Falls on the feminine side. Like, I identify more with female or femme-presenting writers for reasons that are not really relevant to the podcast but just so like when i see the reading of nietzsche my first thought is that for me a lot of nietzsche codes more feminine and yet there's this hyper masculine supplement that comes in a lot Ooh. in his writing Interesting. Like, Balzac, for me, is a man, or maybe was the first non-binary writer. Balzac had a lot of feminine qualities, too. But when I read Balzac, there's a very big fluidity to what the prose is connotating for me, gender-wise. Oh. Yeah, I don't know if you got that. No, I, like, I mean, I'm not as uh, well-read with, like, my information stuff, but that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think it's a lot more obvious within like specific text you read like yeah fantasy and sci-fi for me i can usually tell the difference between you know a male author yeah and it's, a female it's author. usually yeah it's usually pretty obvious yeah at least yeah. with older stuff but i also think that that is largely a product of roles that we've had for a long time exactly it's like, like the, the placement of the feminine perspective the fact that, that, that there's not going to be as much agency in feminine roles whereas like in in Nietzsche there's a when he starts valuing playfulness and aphorisms a lot of that for different eras would, would code to me feminine mm. instead of this hard masculine truth coming through so you think about think about okay modern day uh, equivalent um, there is often a connotation that the arts are feminine and the hard sciences are masculine. Huh. That the, the arts are, we're dealing with opinions and feelings and, and like experiences. And then science is going to come in and give you the answer. This is what is, and this is what's real. This is what's real, and this is what is. And I you tell just you what. Better, and like wagging the finger, like, well, you may have that opinion, but your opinion is wrong. Well, actually. <laughs> well, actually. And I think that we've, I wonder if that's a 20th century viewpoint. I mean, I, I, I know so many women scientists, and that viewpoint has just changed so much. You know, I, I wonder if in the 21st century we can just erode that binary, oh, you know? Please. Like, I kind of like that idea. I've got one for you. Oh, yeah. Talking about, you know, masculine versus feminine writing, especially in fantasy, is usually one that's very obvious. How does Tolkien read to you? Tolkien reads as a Catholic to me. <laughs> <laughs> really? Was he, he was Catholic, right? Or was he something? He wasn't Catholic. Christian, for But sure. there's something, like, specifically... Your uh, animals are sneezing quite a bit. That would be one animal. 
That's incredible. Gandalf heard us talking about Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings, and he just goes, not the Lord of the Rings it's marathon. The nose starts tickling. Well, Lord of the Rings for me, I'm not sure. I don't get as heavy of a binary, but I definitely get the sense of feminine roles. But he does subvert them, you know, obviously. With, uh, with, he does so much. Absolutely. You know. So there's, it's kind of a mixed thing for me. So one yeah. thing that he does that I actually really enjoy that yeah. the movies did not do um, that's a little in contrast to a lot of the other you know mm-hmm. male writer fantasy is the downplay of violence in a very violent story yeah like it, I mean you watch the movies and a good half plus of it is battle scenes you know, fighting all this kind of stuff right Helm's Deep is like two pages long in the book that's great <laughs> and totally it, different I mean, I, the, I, this, the, there's obviously a connection between, you know, he's in World War One. That's some PTSD shit right there. So I think he had a little bit more of an aversion to war than other people. Interesting. But that was always because, trust me, I'm not a big fan of. Uh, he does what a lot of other male fantasy writers do. They're like, no, I'm going to make a powerful female, but only to fill this specific role to move the story forward. Like, Robert Jordan with the Wheel of Time, holy hell, the guy cannot, cannot write, write a woman character. No, nope. <laughs> it just assumes that all women are the same person yeah. day one till the end. Like, none of them develop. They're the mm-hmm. same book after book after book. I think he is one of, like, the most stereotypical, like, male fantasy writers. Yeah. Because the, the place where the female witches are, yeah. the... Arbalon, I think it's called. You look at the map of it, that because you know he does the same thing Tolkien did, where they put in the maps of places, and you look at the map and you're like, really, dude? R- really? I mean, it's 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 a map of vagina. It's a map of just, vaginas. Just you could have called it Lesbos, right? <laughs> yeah, dude, pretty much. And it just like every single female character feels like very much a stereotype of the hysterical emotional you know doesn't think logically because they're too emotional even the logical female characters make the Mm -hmm. same fucking mistakes over and over again for like 11 fucking books yeah and then the last three brandon sanderson who also i don't i wouldn't call him like the best writing female characters but at least he knows how to develop a fucking character because all of them become more than just a cog to move the story forward for our big three men running the show. Right. But, uh, anyways, going back to, like, the Lord of the Rings thing, like, every, like, strong female character in there, like, has a role that they fill and then are like, all right, don't need you anymore. You go ahead and scooch on out of here. Scooch on out, yeah. Go ahead. You, you did the role we needed, and now uh, let the men get back to their business. But I, I do think that there is the downplaying of violence, I think, plays a little bit more towards no, it's a good the, piece of evidence. Uh, the, the feminine style of it. But, yeah. And more towards, you know, he cared more about writing about goddamn trees and, and well, talking to Well, there's a whole shit. aspect of here, of, of, of like... <laughs> If we're just talking connotations, then to a lot of the other characters, the hobbits are connotating more feminine. 
Oh, I mean, you know, there's all sorts of random stuff. Sam and Frodo's relationship, I mean, literally, it wouldn't take much for Tolkien to have been like, you know what? This is easier than what J.K. Rowling had to do. They were gay the whole time. That would have been more <laughs> yeah. believable to me than when she was like, yeah, Dumbledore was gay the whole time. I was like, when? The whole time. I just didn't read about it. Yeah. yeah. At least for Tolkien, it would have been like, oh, yeah, here, here, here. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I can see that. Fair enough. All right. I got one, two more points in this essay that I really, or in the preface, excuse me. Preface. Wanted, yeah, it has to be prefaced because um, it's a free space. So a preface is, is designed, of course, to like introduce the text in some way, give you a, a, a framing, and he does that. But it's also not the body. It's not it's not pinned down as much. It's more liner notes. It's a free space. You know, it's paratext in a, in a certain sense. Um, so he leaves something open, and I just wanted to wonder. I have my own thoughts, but I'm curious what you thought he meant to fill the void that he poses. So he says, like, how repulsive pleasure is now. And then and then he basically says he just doesn't want to go to the party. That crude, musty, brown pleasure, uh, educated people hear maliciously, how maliciously we listen now to the big county fair boom boom with which the educated person and city dweller today permits art books and music to rape him god okay this is awful but it's that part i found another part that i just really hate but um he posits on another side he goes no if we convalesce and still need art it is another kind of art a mocking light fleeting divinely untroubled divinely artificial art that like a pure flame licks on into unclouded skies above all an art for artists for artists only God, so he what? sounds like a smug fucking jazz musician right there. <laughs> right there, like that? Right there. I'm glad you brought this one up. Because yeah. this is one that I'm like, I don't I don't think I agree with you. Because, like, getting over that idea of, like, I enjoy things you can't even imagine. I just, your silly alcohol and your mind-bending. So fuck that. Like, uh, I, I think well, that's... he hates alcohol. Now, and by the way, preface to something else that I forgot. I, I have to make sure that everyone knows I know this. Uh, Nietzsche also hates women. Nietzsche is deeply misogynistic. Not in this text. Well, obviously... So when I said that earlier, I was reading between the lines. The uh, only thing that causes doubts for us, it's the love for a woman. So, you know, that's that's that was another quote in here that I was like... <sighs> That was one where I thought, like, still not over Lou Salome. I almost didn't get my eyes out of the yeah. back of my head after that Well, one. aren't we, Just, aren't we sort of, maybe, now, after going the stuff that we love, giving the quotes that maybe the young man is identifying with? The ones that we're not really... The ones we're laughing at. He's like, that is the truth! It's when I fell in love with her at 16, my life's ruined. Because these are the thoughts of... Tiki Torch. Yeah. These are the thoughts of an incel. (laughs) These are like... These are the thoughts of a person who's been burned and then is like... Or or they perceive that they've been burned. Who knows if they've really been burned. The little jab he throws in here about how, uh, you know... Uh, this delight flares up again and again like a bright blaze over all the distress of what is problematic, over all the danger and uncertainty, and even the jealousy of a lover. Uh, all right, all right, all right, all right. All right. Yeah. Aren't those the points that maybe are, if we're talking about this as a free space, 
a little off the rails, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, a, a point where, like, like... It's like, come on, let's, uh, let's get it Come on back now. Come on we're, back now. We're getting a little angry, my friend. Let's yeah. come on back. We so, were having fun. My thought was, I think there's a lot of readings for what type of art he's thinking about, but that is just literally modernism in music. That is mm. the, the essay, um, The Composer as Specialist, um, by, oh my gosh, he's a great 12-tone composer. I forget his name. But it's the idea that music should be written at the highest level for other musicians and not at this low level which deeply contradicts his metaphorical structure that he's posited of of being down to earth instead he's sort of positing a sort of Was new high babbitt no thank you yeah milton babbitt, babbitt. very good it's a great oh my essay. god oh my god i will remember this moment and forever. A, by the way <laughs> milton babbitt's a great composer i just it's just a weird time he capsule. He was one of the 12-tone ones. Yeah, he was like, 12-tone. I had heard stuff from the, like, I liked, and then some of the things he would say, I'd be like, oh. Yeah, this is a thread like, in a lot of modernist composers. So another one who's a great composer, I love his work, is Charles Warren. And Charles Warren, in, in an interview once, said, I was approached by a rock musician who was like, I want to, you know, learn how to write out my charts. And, and Charles Warren, and... I'm paraphrasing, of course, said something like, you know, I'm not going to teach you to do that because, you know, if you would, then you wouldn't like your own music anymore because of how simple it is. <laughs> and it's like, I, I think that contradicts him, Nietzsche, because here's another fun fact about Nietzsche. Nietzsche was deeply involved with Wagner for a while, and Wagner was very abusive to him because Wagner is a trash human being, obviously. He's an anti-Semite and a great composer. He was the original but... asshole rock star. Yeah. He made good shit, but God, was he a garbage person. Yeah, he was like, treated Nietzsche like an errand boy. And Nietzsche, you know, kind of, he had a deep, deep experience with Wagner. And if I remember right, the music that got him out of it was Bizet, Carmen. You know, very light songs and completely the opposite of the ring cycle, right? And is that the. I think so, yeah. Yeah, but like. I, I think so. I, 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 you know, it's been so long since I've listened to Carmen. I can't. Everyone, everyone knows this thing like the back of their hands. But I, I'll have to go listen again. But what what it sounds like he's talking about is either modernism or Captain Beefheart. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? Like, like it sounds like on the one hand he's talking about this idea of music or or in our new art of the future being deeply exclusive you know it's going to be so lighthearted and high-minded that anyone wouldn't even notice it was a work of art okay or wouldn't know how to listen to it as a lot of 12-tone music is for a lot of people or not and then and then you go to the more what i would hope he's believing is more of this idea of art as in a certain sense all the all the characteristics he said without the art for artists only passage i can't i just can't i can't think of an art form and and here is where i also have to say my own limitations there might be an art form that nietzsche is picturing that we are just a hundred years away from reaching mm. you know i mean he's thinking something totally different that we can't even conceive of yet i but he doesn't talk about it more so i can't i mean rely on that as like Adopting the mindset of 
I'm going to create for artists versus I'm going to create for every man, I feel like you are already on the wrong path of creativity. Yeah, like, like who is the, what is the listening, or, or in the words that I use it a lot, what is the listening, what is the ideal listening position that you want a hypothetical listener to assume when listening to your music? Like, what, what is that position? Can they get onto the wavelength of it? What are the barriers that prevent someone from listening? And I get the sense that Nietzsche, I think that contradiction is not just about some musical art of the future or future to the 19th century. I think that contradiction exists in this text. Because remember, he's thinking of himself as an artist. So mm. let's take this preface as a work of art. Is there something to that contradiction here? That the people are always going to produce ideologies and that escaping that necessarily means becoming alone in a sense. Hmm. Yeah, I... You know, he like doesn't like, like the women are causing doubts, the, the beliefs of others are causing doubts. Is there a certain sense that, that maybe he's in medius ray here? Like he hasn't reached that newborn state that he clearly is trying to get at and maybe this is him being happy with the process oh we start on a positive start note, a positive note. <laughs> is like rather than him feeling as if he's reached a certain stage he's gotten to a point where he's just happy to enjoy the ride but there is i don't know because when he talks about the like how repulsive pleasure is now, like the, yeah, that, that that whole line right there, like I think that there is something to enjoying like the basic things. Like, do you want to be the guy in your group of friends that's like, theme parks are so juvenile. You guys and your brown musty pleasures over there how do, how do you, be like well, fucking let's hit the roller coaster well, let's what, just yeah. enjoy it well what what counts as the first paragraph a tenderer tongue for all good things with merrier senses with a more delicate taste for joy what is that in opposition to the pleasure of now some of them i get the pleasure of the rich people in terms of over excessiveness of losing one's self in that way I, I can i can see how he's putting that on the negative of of not appreciating smaller things you know he's talking about subtlety and pleasure oh but what i have trouble with is do i still get to go to the fair yeah. <laughs> you know if i adopt him fully if, he, if if i'm Herr nietzsche is my man do i go to fairgrounds are fireworks still okay Oh, well, fireworks are I mean, those are kind of a big kaboom. country fair boom-boom, aren't they? <laughs> that was a silly line. <laughs> but I, I guess, like... Okay, the saving graces, I'm assuming one thing is very firmly on the side of the good for Nietzsche. And that is deep self-reflective philosophy mm. in questioning your values. Everything he's outlining that he has believed that he's, he's really on the path towards doing is on the side of the good. And I guess what would be on the side of the bad would be anything that leads you towards back to Platonism, back to Christianity, mm. back to being intoxicated by a truth that you've earned through error. Oh. But, like, at the end of the day, 
I still don't know if fairgrounds are count. <laughs> like, I don't know. There's certainly a sense of loneliness in Nietzsche that's not really like mentioned, but I think it's part of what he's accepting as overcoming is accepting the idea of being alone. Mm. That I don't know if if that's necessarily what is universally a prescription <laughs> that one should do if he's if he's doing that mm. i mean let me rephrase that that is not my belief <laughs> no no i i think you're definitely on a little something there what about drag shows because on, on a one reading you could take drag shows as inherently nietzschean positive phenomenon fiction mm. play of appearance superficial uh um uh, like sort of like goofing around with identity just never do it at a county fair just not at it well so don't go to a bar don't go down not at waikiki so i guess the positive but like i guess and then i also wonder if i'm i'm just like giving him too much airtime on that part i don't i don't know like is that really an important part or is the real important part this line okay to move to the other can i move to the other one that i think okay and perhaps sick thinkers are more numerous in the history of philosophy. 34. What will become of the thought itself when it is subjected to the pressure of sickness? This is the question that concerns the psychologist, and here an experiment is possible. I mean, I mean, he goes on. But that quote, the pressure of sickness on a belief system, that's that's the gold for me right there of this of this oh, thing, right? Like so that's so good. Because the pressure of sickness is going to be some type of reality, some type of cognitive dissonance, reality mm. denying, um, that might result, I guess, I'm going to call it the death drive, but I might call it something like ultimate enjoyment, which is like, I know climate change is happening, but I can't believe it, so I don't believe climate change is happening, and if it is happening, I'll be raptured sooner. Huh. Because like, huh. that's the right-wing shift, right? Is It's... You hear it all the time, if you read between the lines, the right-wing mantra about climate change is, it's not real. Okay, it's real. Okay, it's real, but it's not man-made. Okay, it is man-made. Then it's the rapture. That means God's <laughs> gonna call us up. Yeah, and at any point, there's no confrontation with anything. It's just a, a different... If you're at step one, it's this answer. If you're at step two, well, then it must be this answer. And there's no point along that chain unto the death of everyone that you're on. Mm. and i guess that's why in nietzsche's view the will to truth is so can be can be so dangerous is because it's like well it's not the will to truth alone that's that's dangerous per se but when one views that they've arrived at the truth you you've left science but you've also left the world like all the things oh. talking about right i don't know maybe i i think I I like that a lot because I just I feel like as soon as you accept like a hard truth it's like oh yep that's it you have stagnated yourself you have put a little staple into expanding thought in certain areas oh but, but I think stuff. that hold on wait that you're using the word truth differently doesn't he in the text say that's the type of conclusion that you should reach um he says uh, my god, I can't find it. Um, and conclusions are consolations. 
This tyranny of pain excelled by the tyranny of pride that refused the conclusions of pain. Because mm. remember the first thing we were saying about having hope, whereas a more courageous thing is to have hopelessness in, in Zizek's mind about certain things. So I would say that like the model you just said is actually what he would endorse. What? Say it again. What did you? Hold on, wait. Yeah. Okay. I might be wrong. So, I would say he would not be on board with the idea of you know, once you find a truth like ah yes, this is a belief that like the same thing we talk about like when yeah. you adopt ideologies. But that's a different thing than you said. You said when you accept some, come to accept something like your death. Your mortality isn't the acceptance of your death a different thing mm. than the arrive. Isn't it an idea? I think it was more of the phrasing. Okay, yeah, because like more an ideology like is going to arrive. I was thinking yeah. more like ideological. Truths, okay, God, not like the yeah. idea that you're going to die, and chances are it's going to be fucking black after that, and there's yeah, nothing that, else. That fits with conclusions of pain and conclusions. Yeah, of Yeah, no, completely like, different. Yeah, if you I was talking more of like yeah. the idea of you know if you discover a truth in a text and. Yeah building a belief system off of those things you're like no i believe this and this is i i think that that is it's asking for stagnation yeah because yeah, you're ignoring yeah. expanding your thought process over things because you're like oh no my belief system says that's a no so i will not look into that anymore yeah it's a it's a in psychoanalysis called fetishistic disavowal mm. i know this is true but since it conflicts or can't be processed by me as being true, it is therefore not true. Yep. I don't, I don't care what your facts are. <laughs> yeah. It conflicts with my ideology. Therefore, you gotta be some kind of fucking shyster telling me this shit. Clearly, you're the devil. Or being influenced by him. Otherwise, you wouldn't be feeding me these silly facts. Yeah. And that's... that's what I read is like the danger of like finding truths, even like beyond religion, like in philosophy. If you read, you know, one philosopher and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, that's my fucking guy. He had it figured out. I, I think you missed the point. Or you're reading edifying philosophy. You're reading, you're reading, um, your philosophy for self-help, right? Like, okay. Like, like, look at, here's, here's my, one of my least favorite industries in America right now. And it's been going on probably for all of time. But in America right now, it, it assumes the, the role of the self-help book. Because the self-help book does a lot of things that it doesn't realize it's doing. And I think all of them are bad. On a certain sense, I read Nietzsche as a self-help philosopher. <laughs> like there's certain passages where it's like, oh, that's beautiful and I felt better and that's great. But no, he is on the critical side. If you open up a self-help book today, it's gonna get like a Jordan Peterson, just uh, rules for life, or like you know, clean your bedroom or something. It does chicken soup for the misogynist chicken by Andrew soup Tate for the misogynist. It what it what it does at the end of the day is it tells you first of all that like any problem that's probably from the outside gonna be viewed as like a structural thing, like you're buying these self help books. Maybe you've been recommended by your therapist, but often maybe it's in lieu of going to therapy or, or doing a deeper self-reflection. It's taken as self-reflection, but what it offers you to do often is sort of like a, like a shopping list, right? Like it tells you what to do. 
Hmm. And I just know that that's what people, I know people want, I know that's sellable, but I, I, I almost think that like that, that step of sort of like, it can be very fine to say you should get eight hours of sleep. Like obviously if that's what's on the to-do list of your self-help book, I am, I am on board, but it winds up smuggling in all sorts of ideological random crap in there you know, like all sorts of like uh, ego-centered viewpoints of life, usually, or like. It's like when know. I was reading this post from this guy that was like, you know, I really like Jordan Peterson stuff, but I'm not political. I just like his self-help things. You're like, they're they're there. They're inexplicably tied. Like the. I love that phrase. You kind of can't have one without the other. I think you meant inextricably, but I do love inexplicably tied because that's the mind he has. <laughs> right? One way or another. Like yeah. The, the, Sorry. They, I don't feel like one can exist without the other. Like, you yeah. have to adopt these weird viewpoints for some of, like, his self-help stuff. Like, I think yeah. it's kind of a package deal. Yeah, and I think, like, uh, it, it winds up in a lot of places it winds up often the the christian route which is again it can it can be fine it's just not for me or it can wind up at like a deeply troubling place look at like mommy blogging on facebook and these groups almost always go to what you should be doing is like one step away from QAnon, and then they're in QAnon, right like it's very conspiratorial at the end of the day because it's structurally sort of formatted that way, I guess. Mm. So yeah, I, that's all to say. I agree, and I think I don't think he'd like that. Well, hold on. Fun read, like a lot of fun. I uh, I like that more than anything. It just completely paints him in a different light than what a lot of people would associate. I agree overall and then I also think that I'm wrong on that like I agreed at first on that and then the more we went there's over some parts, others well, the more I went in. well wait a minute there are I don't definitely know if I, actually, I have a more conflicted in. reading of the text the, maybe it's because it, so. you're not reading Nietzsche as if it's the bible with answers because you just left your religion and you're looking for the new text with all those answers in it that could be or, or, or on the negative side I could be reading his subjectivity in a positive light Ooh. You know, and and uh, not taking the whole being, the whole writer into consideration. I mean, it's a preface-free space. Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, misreading his subjectivity. I think it'd be more of what we got out of it, because we're developing our own morals based upon this text that we mm -hmm. read. We're not letting his subjectivity tell us. Yeah. What, what we're, we're not developed from this text. <laughs> we're not in the in another quote that I just kind of died at. I am very conscious of the advantages that my fickle health gives me over all robust squares. <laughs> I, just, I, I again didn't really, didn't really appreciate that for being as sufficiently weird as, as I do now. Was like the term for a square, like, oh, that guy's a square. He ain't hip. Was that even around then, or did you know? Well, it gives the translation. It says, "Fear Schrotigen." des geistes and we so we'll have to look it up but yeah 
I, in, I enjoyed reading it. Robust squares. Robust squares. I'm so lucky that I'm sick instead of all those healthy squares out there that don't know all my cool jazz music. My own, all, all, the nor, all the normies. <laughs> oh, man. That was fun, though. That was fun. That was a good time. Alrighty, we're going to sign off for the day. Thank you all for listening. Next week, we will be reading from Queer Reflections in Horror. It's going to be great. We're going to read about the blob. The blob. The blob.